Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. The message entitled, The Holy Spirit and Salvation. We have noted the spiritual blessing of the believer through the Father and the Son, Jesus, as part of the wealth of the believer. The Father is indicated in verse 3 through 6, the Son, 7 through 12, and uh, the Holy Spirit is mentioned last in verses 13 and 14. Each person, remember, the Trinity is involved in salvation and is to be uh, praised for their part, and we find that in Verse 6, 12, and 14. And as stated before, it is one long sentence in the Greek from verse 3 to 14. So, we want to look at the blessing associated with the Holy Spirit in the doctrine of salvation. Um, verse 13 and 14. Let me read. He says, In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. And so, the blessed association here with the Holy Spirit in terms of blessing and the doctrine of salvation is evident by the following. First, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the first part of 13. Second, we have the identification of the Holy Spirit, the last part of 13 to the first part of 14. And then you have the admiration of the Holy Spirit, the last part of 14. Illumination, identification, and admiration. The illumination of the Holy Spirit comes first. Notice in verse 13, the beginning. The Apostle Paul connected Jesus with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. In Him you also trusted. The phrase in Him, as we've noted many, many times, it refers to Jesus who the Ephesians had trusted to save them. The word trusted is in italics notice in your text, indicating that it's not present in the original Greek. And that's an honest translation when it gives you the italics. Uh, and yet it's put in there so that you can understand what is implied and you get a better understanding in the English. Um, but since Paul here is building on the previous verse, notice we, all, we who first trusted in Christ, it implies... Indicative of the illumination, conviction, and repentance of the Ephesians. So, it's also carried over to this. Okay? They also trust it. And that's why the English translators put it in the italics, because the thought of the previous verse carries over to this one, though it's, the word is not in the Greek. Now, the reference to is interpreted by some, as we noted last time, to indicate the Gentiles, in contrast to we of the previous verse for those Jews who were Hebrews and had trusted Jesus. But as we have noted, if that were the intended distinction, then it would indicate we, the Jewish Christian, alone should be to the praise of His glory in verse 12, which could not be. And you, the Gentiles in verse 13, would also indicate the only ones 
to be sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is untrue. The reality is that both are applicable to Jew and Gentile. He will make a distinction between Jew and Gentile as we move along, but right here, I don't believe the distinction is really there. Now remember the phrase in verse 12, first trusted, is a compound word as we uh, pointed out. The um, par- a participle perfect active, literally, having first put hope in Jesus, indicating confident hope, the Ephesians also had trusted, like Paul, in Jesus through the Holy Spirit, a confident hope. Now, notice the Apostle Paul connected their trust in Jesus after hearing the gospel. Listen to his words. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So the sequence of their regeneration was clear here. The Ephesians got saved and trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior after they heard. It's an nearest participle, literally, having heard the preaching of the gospel, not before. No one gets saved before they hear the gospel. Real simple, okay? Just reverse it. Romans 10, 14 says, uh, How then shall they call on him who they have not, who they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Romans 10, 15 and 16 says, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tithings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So the gospel goes forth all the time. God always has his instruments, whether prophets, priests, or New Testament saints, are always proclaiming the word of God. God sends them. But not everybody believes or pays heed to the gospel. So then faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God in um, Romans 10.17. Now notice this is clear by the phrase, the word of truth is confirmed. And affirmed here. The phrase literally says, the word of the truth. The article is present indicating a very specific truth. Truth, Alethea, we've noticed this word before. It means what is true in any matter under consideration. In this case, it's God's divine revelation of truth about their lost condition to be saved. The divine word of the truth, they embrace personally. It's interpreted by the phrase, the gospel of your salvation. They're synonymous. It's an interpretation of these, the truth. As you know, the word gospel means good news, glad tithings. What, what, what greater news and what gladder news could there be? That man is so lost and so separated from God that there is no way he can ever make it back. And then the message comes that God has made a way back. It would be like being on an island. And you know there's no way you can get back. And then you see a ship coming. And they make the way for you to get back. 
And you know that if it wasn't for that ship coming, you would have died. It's the exact same thing. The word gospel appears 77 times in the New Testament. And notice the phrase, your salvation, indicates the power of the gospel. The personal pronoun. You can't be saved for somebody else. Someone can't save you by proxy the way the Mormons baptize by proxy. You can only ask God to save you. And then respond to God. No one can respond for you. Now you can pray for others to be saved and if they respond, God will save them. But you can't save them or be saved for them. It's an individual choice. They possess the gift of their salvation having been convicted of sins by the word of God, the truth, by the Holy Spirit. It comes together. It's like fire and gas. There's combustion. There's energy. Both are necessary, the word and the Holy Spirit. So they had agreed with God of their guilt and sin and repented, asking for forgiveness of their sins. If you're born again, this is exactly what you did. This is exactly what I did. And since that day, I continue to live under the same condition. I continue, I continue to agree with God about my sin, admit my sin, ask forgiveness of my sins, and stay in fellowship with God. The believer lives a life of Ongoing repentance. Once in a while you'll see a teacher that come along and they come and go where they tell you that you don't need to confess any more sins because when you die, when Jesus died for you, all your sins were in the future. So they're already covered. So you don't have to confess them. <laughs> there used to be a guy on, on radio years ago named Bob George. Anybody with two first names for first and last name, something's wrong. And um, that should have been the first clue. But it's amazing what people teach. Amazing. Regeneration is like having night vision. Without it, you can't see anything. And all of a sudden, the Lord regenerates you. You're born again. Now you see. Clearly, you see the destruction of sin. You see the grace of God over your life, having forgiven you. You see the truth about the fallen world. You see everything much clearer. You don't know everything, but your vision is very, very, very clear for the first time. I never stopped to be amazed at the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit to illuminate, convict and save a person. Um, regardless of the sins committed. Regardless of the depravity of the heart of that man or woman. Regardless of the destruction that that sin has brought upon their life. See, sometimes we look at a person and say, well, he, he's beyond that. He, now he, he's gone. And, and sometimes, and most of the time, the people that we think are the closest and almost there are the furthest away from God. And the one that we say, that dude is gone. 
It isn't long before he's saved. Now, equally can happen the other way, but so often we look because we make judgments like that. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. The power of the gospel, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can make that real. Your wife cannot convince you. In fact, you'll get mad at your wife. Your husband cannot convict you and convince you. You will be rebellious against them. It's only the Holy Spirit that can turn that light on. And when He does, it's both exciting and it's scary. Because you see yourself for the first time that you were under the wrath of God, headed for hell. First Thessalonians 1 5 says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance as you know what kind of man we were among you for your sake. Now he's talking to the Thessalonians. They received the gospel under great persecution. Paul had to flee. He tried to come back twice. He couldn't. He was concerned about them. And when he heard that they were uh, steadfast, unmovable, he rejoiced. It was the power of the Spirit of God that made them stand. They didn't become Christians under a, a very clean and peaceful environment, but a hostile one. Pagan territory. The source of the regeneration has never been by hearing pagan religions. The Ephesians were there with the temple of Dianus, the Aphrodites, many other gods. No sinner has ever been saved by religion. Religion is um, not a step towards God. Religion is a step away from God. It rejects the true revelation of God. It shapes God in their own image, in their own likeness, according to their own dogmas or doctrines. Religion blinds sinners from the truth of God as being the only truth about God. As a religious person, you're open to many opinions, many philosophies. And you grab what you believe is good and you accept it all. But if you really examine it, they contradict each other. And certainly contradict the Bible. But when you examine everything by the Bible, and you run it through the Bible, everything that contradicts the Bible is thrown out. Because that's the standard. That's the plumb line. Religion deceives sinners more. Giving them false assurance that they're okay. No sinner has ever been saved reading or hearing intellectual books of man. Not through philosophy, not through poetry, not through psychology or sociology or any other ology. None of those subjects and topics and fields tell you that you are a sinner lost under God's wrath and need of salvation. In fact, many of those books will tell you that you're good. 
And that you need to tap into your goodness. And you need to believe in yourself. And you've got to dig deep and you'll find the goodness in you. They deceive us. Because we love to hear good things about us. You don't hang out with people that are critical of you. You hang out with people that compliment you, like you. Now, if that's all the kind of people you hang out with. They're yes people. Then you're deceiving yourself. Get yourself some real friends that tell you who you are. But by nature, we, 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 we like to be complimented. We, we like to be liked. Listen to Colossians 2.8. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, phileo sophia, the love of wisdom, and empty deceit according to the traditions of men. The ABCs of the world and the principles, principles of the world. And not according to Christ. There's the standard. Everything must be judged by Him. The major problem today in the church is that pastors and leaders are f- focusing on community and unity at the expense of the proclamation of sin and the power of the gospel. Just like politicians. This is due to the political correctness inside the church. No one wants to say anything that is going to offend somebody. Or declare anything negative from the pulpit. Sermons are very positive. Even when the text is a negative warning. Only the positive side is emphasized. Being disloyal to God. And treacherous to the people of God. I have heard what the shepherds said who prophesy lies in my name. Jeremiah 23, 25, 29 says God speaking. Saying, I have dreamed and I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart who tried to make my people forget my name. By their dreams which everyone tells his neighbor. As their father forgot my name for Baal. The prophet who has a dream. Let him tell a dream. And he who has my word. Let him speak my word faithfully. What is shaft to the wheat? Says the Lord Yahweh. Is not my word like a fire? Says the Lord Yahweh. Like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Nothing will work but the word of God. False prophets, false teachers, they just compliment each other, applaud one another, affirm one another, and, 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 but they don't, they don't let no one debate them. They don't let no one confront them. They just kind of, you know, fungus among us. They just hang out together. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5 says, And brethren, when I came to you, did not come to you with excellency of speech, wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. That is the only thing that you are to settle for. The power of God in your life. To work in you and through you. And to make you less like you and more like Him. The strategy of many pastors and leaders today is that they are depending on liberal, progressive, non-threatening and highly organized 
commercialized method through marketing, technology, networking, and high visibility more than the power of the Holy Spirit to grow the church. (laughs) They are creating a carnal community. They are catering to the flesh of people. They are carnal themselves and using carnal means to motivate carnal people to accomplish their vision for their ministries by begging for money constantly. One of the greatest carnal marks of that is people who beg constantly. It's real simple. Pastor Chuck always said, where God guides, he provides. And he demonstrated a life of what he taught. We have attempted to model that every aspect as we can. That we don't pressure you. That we teach you. We pray for you. And let God take care of that matter. So we don't beg on the radio. We don't beg from the pulpit. We don't send letters out. And we don't let anybody send letters out in our name. (laughs) Simple. They are very creative and clever. Listen, they're nothing new. Isaiah 30, verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord Yahweh, who make, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. There comes a time as a minister, a, a ministry, that once you leave dependence on God and you start manipulating people and working people, you are adding sin to sin because greed will get you. It's real simple. And you take the reins and pretty soon you don't know what is of God and what is of you. Now you're really trouble. Those who strive to attain have to strive to maintain. Jesus builds his church. And I say, say to you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. I will build my church. He tells Peter. The early church believed this, this simple truth. Listen to Acts two forty six and 47. So continuing daily. With one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate the bread with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. The illumination of the Holy Spirit regenerates sinners into believers. No one else. Notice secondly, the identification of the Holy Spirit. The end of 13 and the beginning of 14. At the end of 13, the Apostle Paul revealed the consequence of salvation by the Holy Spirit. You ready for it? Sanctification. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The person providing the sanctification is indicated in whom? Referring again to Jesus. Jesus is the vital link, once again, to the Holy Spirit's work of sanctifying the believer. The Father made the salvation plan for the sinner to be set apart for God. The Son was the channel for salvation in order that the person be able to be set apart for God. And the Holy Spirit is the agent for salvation to carry out the setting apart for God. 
All three are involved. Jesus, having been believed on by the Ephesians, was according to what the Scriptures declared about Jesus. That He was the Son of God, eternal. That He was the Son of Man through the Incarnation. That He was the Lamb of God, the sin uh, of... He would take away the sins of the world. The wrath of God would fall upon Him for the whole world. He is the only one the only meeting between God and man, able to forgive sin, justify sin, reconcile us back to God. No one else. This is what they believe. So you can't just believe anything about Jesus. You can't say, well, he, he wasn't really all, 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 all God and he wasn't all man. You know, he was. You've got to agree with what the Bible says about him. The result of having believed in Jesus, notice, was that they were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the sanctifier. The word for seal means to set a mark or a stamp. You also find it in 2 Corinthians one twenty-two. It was used to indicate ownership and it was used to indicate something genuine. Um, a wax seal would be put on a document and the ring would be pressed on it and it would glue it together. And if anybody tampered with it, they would know that it wasn't genuine or that it had been tampered with. It is used for the seal of Rome that was placed upon the tomb of Jesus in Matthew twenty-seven sixty-six, and for the scars of Paul for the gospel in Galatians six seventeen. So the context tells you what this word indicates. Now, notice the believer having believed received the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes into the believer; his body becomes a temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, the minute you confess and you're born again. The Holy Spirit illuminates the believer to understand the things of God. 1 Corinthians um, 2, uh, 9 through 16 tells us uh, the natural man can't understand those things. And the Holy Spirit transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians three eighteen says, one day at a time, as we grow, as we develop, as we mature. Romans 8, 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Every person who repents and asks Christ to forgive them receives the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a child of God without the Holy Spirit. Simple. He'll be with you, Jesus said, and he will be in you. And then the third preposition we won't get into tonight, the baptism upon you. Okay? The seal is not the baptism of the Spirit. It's the seal that you belong to Him. It is not water baptism either that people teach. Now notice the promise of the Holy Spirit was prophetic. The prophet Joel prophesied about the promise of the Holy Spirit to the church as well as to Israel during the Great Tribulation in Joel chapter 2 verse 28. Um, Jesus spoke about it also there are the steps of the, uh, uh, of the temple on the, on, on, as you were going into the temple uh, from the side of the Kidron Valley up. Uh, in John seven thirty seven thirty nine, 39 it says, If any man thirst on the last day of the, of the great feast, he said, Come unto me. And I will, and out of your innermost being shall gush torrents of living water. And the commentary of John was, and this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, which was not yet given to the church, because he was not yet glorified. The promise of the Father 
is what Jesus called it in Luke 24, 49 and Acts 1, 4. Peter identified his fulfillment at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 16 through 21. It was a promise given to Abraham, Galatians 3.16. To those who are children of Abraham. Notice then the Apostle Paul here revealed the assurance of salvation by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit till our glorification. The Holy Spirit, notice, indicated to, indicated to be here the guarantee of our inheritance. He says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? And the word guarantee is the word erabon and means a pledge or a down payment. Um, when you put a down payment, you are telling that person you're sincere about purchasing whatever object or thing that you're looking at. The partial payment or advance installment is evidence that you will return to complete the transaction. Um, the word in Spanish is enganche. It's, it's, gancho is a hook. So you're, you're, you're hooking up to it, and it's mine. Okay? Same kind of idea. Now, 2 Corinthians 1.22, and it says, Now he who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us as God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians um, 1, 5, 5 also, or chapter 5, verse 5 also, speaks about the earnest of the Spirit. Now the word inheritance means an eternal blessedness of all we are to receive. What He has bequeathed and given to us. The seal of the Holy Spirit is but a fraction of the future endowment. The emphasis notices on the future state of the blessedness of the believer. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joiners with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, then we may also be glorified together. Romans eight sixteen and 17. So we are joiners with Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have everything that He's promised to us or that He's going to do for us, but we have a down payment. We have part of it, right? That's what He's talking about. Roman law is interesting. It allowed an adopted son to inherit what was not naturally his, and he was considered as a natural son. So when the word adoption is used by Paul, it's under the Roman law. A, 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 a rich man could go out and he could have four sons and he could take someone that he adopted that was not his natural son, adopt him. And in adoption, he would be equal in the eyes of the law as a natural son. He could leave everything to that adopted son because he was considered as natural. See, we're not natural children of God. We're children of wrath by nature, the Bible says. But because he adopted us, we are looked and determined to be natural born sons through His grace. Notice the Holy Spirit is a foretaste and assurance at our death by the Lord coming for His church or glorified. Either way, He says, until... The redemption of the purchase of possession. So the redemption in context is not the same as in verse 7. Redemption through the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins and sanctification. The word is the same redemption. 
a release affected by payment and deliverance from the penalty of sin. In verse 7, the same word. But in this context of redemption, it is in reference to the final ransoming, releasing of our spirit from our bodies to heaven to be present with Jesus. The purchased possession is our spirit first. We are spirit beings. Our bodies are the vehicle and instrument by which we express ourselves. The instant you give your last breath as a believer, immediately you are instantly present before the Lord Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 8. He says it twice. Our bodies go to the grave and they will be glorified at the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. You know, it's much like a person who's here living on earth. He has present benefits as an heir to his father and his family before death. Of its father. Or whoever it is that's going to leave him something. And he will equally receive the total of his inheritance at the death of that one that leaves him that. The only difference is that we receive it when we die. (laughs) But it's the same. The Holy Spirit is like a divine courier entrusted and responsible to deliver the saint to Jesus. Now, the sealing with the Holy Spirit is used often to prove that a believer cannot turn away from Christ at the expense of every warning. And I want you to pay real close attention to what I'm going to say because I'm going to be quoting the founder and the leader of Calvary Chapels, Pastor Chuck Smith, in his book of the distinctives so that you know what And I only quote dead people because they never change their mind. Okay? Listen carefully. Because I'm sure this book is going to be altered and changed in the near future. Listen carefully. The late pastor Chuck Smith, founder and leader of Calvary Chapels, believed and taught for 48 years from December of 1965 till October 2013, the balance of the middle ground between Calvinism and Armenianism. In view, of the first, in view of the fact that both predestination and free will are presented through the scriptures as part of the whole counsel of God, um, they complement and they don't contradict. This being one of the distinctives of Calvary Chapel. Distinctives. Now, I'm quoting Pastor Chuck. Quote, We neither are five-point Calvinists nor are Armenians. We do not believe in the, we do believe in the security of the believer, though I don't like the word security, I like the word assurance, okay, but same thing. We don't believe that you can lose your salvation because you lost your temper or told a lie, and as a result need to go forward next Sunday night to repent and get saved. We believe in the security of the believer, but we also believe in the perseverance of the saints. We do not believe that because you are a saint, you will necessarily persevere. That's key. But that you need to persevere because you are a saint. 
Jesus said, and he quotes now, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciple indeed. John 8, 31. Then he quotes John Jesus again. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done to you. He's quoting John fifteen six and 7. Now listen carefully. Pastor Chuck then states in page 115, Jesus himself brought up the possibility of a person not abiding in him. So we seek to take a balanced position rather than getting on one side and presenting the five points of Calvinism. It can't be any clearer, ladies and gentlemen. Now, if you listen to Cave Wave, all you do is hear Calvinism now of eternal security. And all those guys... All went along with Chuck. Now Chuck is gone. And now things are changing. Are we clear on this? Okay? They would have never said what they say when Chuck was here. That's what Chuck believed. The founder and the leader. And what he taught in his verse-by-verse exposition every time he went through it. Simple. Zane C. Hodge writes regarding the five points of Calvinism known by the acronym TULIP. Quote, none of these ideas has been right to be called normative Protestant theology. None has ever been held by a wide cross-section of Christendom. Most important, none of them is biblical. All of them lie outside the proper parameters of Christian orthodoxy. And if you were with us in our series on Calvinism, I don't, we don't have time to go all through it. It's there. If you haven't, get it. The exercise of our free will is not works for salvation, but rather the enabling of God for salvation. Any attempt to teach either predestination or free will at the expense of the other will be unbalanced and extreme, ending up in spiritual error. The sovereignty of God and human responsibility are both taught and necessary, as taught in Scripture. But let's just say I'm wrong. What do I have to lose by telling you to abide? Absolutely nothing. But if I'm right, you've got a whole bunch of people thinking they're going to heaven and they're not. Are we clear on that? I'd rather err on my side. And I think I have the scriptures to back me up. You cannot wipe away all the warnings. The warnings are to believers, not to non-believers. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Don't go to the left. Don't go to the right. Don't turn away from God. It's to believers, not non-believers. The believer's confident assurance should be on nothing but dependence on the work of Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul again, Philippians 1.6, and I believe it wholeheartedly. Being confident of this thing, very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. I don't doubt my salvation. I have no doubts that God's going to continue it. I'm abiding in Christ Jesus. I have to yield to him to do the work. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. 
We're not to resist, grieve, or quench or insult the spirit of grace. Acts 7.51, Ephesians 4.30, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, and Hebrews 10.29. That's the believer, not the non-believer. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Paul stated, for this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. 2 Timothy 1.12. I agree with Paul. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. In the life that I now live, I live by, in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Abiding in him, crucified life. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors in birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit that seal the down payment. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the full revelation, redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Confident hope, assurance. Listen to Peter and Jude. Peter puts it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to abide. That doesn't mean that you can live in sin. Jude puts it this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. He is able to present you and I faultless before the presence of God. Wow. The identification of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify and glorify the believer. Notice thirdly, it's short, the admiration of the Holy Spirit to the praise of His glory. <laughs> the Apostle Paul indicated the response of a believer towards the Holy Spirit regarding salvation. It should be that of praise. Simple. The word too expresses the goal or the aim. The idea is one of expressing thankful appreciation and adoration by the sinner who is saved from the heart in his worship of God for the Holy Spirit and his part in salvation. The word praise appears 11 times in the New Testament. Seven of the eleven referred to God or the gospel. The three persons of the God here are praised for their part in salvation, as we pointed out throughout this entire section. The Father in verse 6, the Son in verse 12, and now the Holy Spirit in verse 14. This is not a natural, but rather a supernatural response, having been saved 
You ever go out on Friday night before you're a Christian and say, Praise God, He's all good. No. Not me. Having heard the gospel of salvation, as verse 13 says, the good news from heaven, the power of God unto salvation, as He initiated salvation. Having been convicted of one's sins and hostility towards God, the Holy Spirit revealing the sins of man, both public and private. The Holy Spirit revealing the need of a person to call upon God in repentance to be saved. Having been forgiven of their sins by repenting, becoming a child of God. So the sinner obtains faith by hearing the word of God, as Romans ten seventeen says. Some of you got saved not intending to be saved. You just heard the gospel. You weren't even planning on being there. Or somebody confronted you in the street, witnessed to you. Or you walked in a hotel and you pulled out a Bible. And you read it. And the Holy Spirit nailed you. You got saved all alone. The sinner calls on the name of the Lord. And is saved. The heart believe and with the mouth confession is made. Romans ten thirteen. Notice this praise looks back to the two things. First is verse 13 at the end and the other in 14 at the beginning. Being sealed with the Spirit, the guaranteed pledge of our inheritance and the redemption of our purchased possession. The Apostle Paul here indicated that the praise of a believer for the Holy Spirit's part in salvation should be that of his glory. The word glory, again, we've seen it before, is the word doxa. In our context, it has the sense of splendor and brightness that belongs only to the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word, in its root word, has the idea of heaviness, of a greater dignity and honor, um, uniqueness, if you will. Kind of like the Shekinah glory that you we read about in the temple and the tabernacle. It was awestruck and people would put their face to the ground or wouldn't draw close, revering that aspect. The Greek word doxa has a similar idea of the supreme magnificence, the excellence and the splendor. Because remember, the Holy Spirit is deity also. He's God, the third person. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's all-present. He has every attribute that the Son and the Father has. The praiseful worship over the glory is over the magnanimous splendor of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer till he's taken home. It's like a carpenter beginning to construct a house and he pulls up on the site and there's nothing there. And then he gets his surveying lines out and, you know, he checks out the levels and he sets the stakes and the strings and then they start digging. They lay the foundation and then the cement is poured and then, you know, then the lumber comes in and piece by piece and all of a sudden he keeps working on it and finally the house is finished. 
Well, that's exactly what happens from the time of salvation to the time that we go home. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is building. And he's fixing doors and fixing windows that leak and uh, sometimes holes that we punch through the roof and he's patching them up. <laughs> the glory belongs only to the third person of the Godhead for his pardon and the salvation of the sinner he is saying here. First, praise of his glory for the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit during our lives as Jesus promised. Second, praise of his glory for his part in the final act of the complete ransoming and redeeming of our bodies. Two aspects, while we're here and getting us there. In Exodus 33.10, it says, And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose and worshipped each man in his door. Each of us are to be so aware of the glory of the Holy Spirit, the majesty of the third person that is constantly at work in our lives, desiring to lead us, to guide us, to convict us, to protect us, to give us wisdom. He is... The other comforter, one just like Jesus. He's the silent witness of Jesus. He never speaks of himself, only speaks of Jesus. He's the silent witness. He brings no attention to himself. He points people to Jesus. So when people are pointing to the Holy Spirit and praying to the Holy Spirit, that's not biblical. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. He doesn't call attention to himself. He doesn't speak of himself, Jesus says. He's the one just like Jesus, the comforter. Jesus promised his disciples not to leave them as orphans, but that he would send the Holy Spirit to them, which also applies to us. Let me give you some of these. This is, a, this is in the Last Supper uh, up in the upper room in John 14 through 16. In John 14, 16, it says that he would pray to the Father and he would give them another helper that he may abide forever. Okay, now Calvinists love that. See, he abides forever. The context is Jesus came, he was leaving. The Holy Spirit is coming and he's not leaving. That's context. Nothing about predestination to total security. Dishonest. John fourteen seventeen. He calls him the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But they knew him. For they knew him, they would dwell. Or they, they knew them, him, and they would dwell in them and be in them. So when we weren't Christians, the Holy Spirit dwelt with us. Attempting to save us, convict us. And then when you're born again, he comes in you. 14.26, he says, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. 
15.26 But when the Helper comes, when I shall, uh, that I shall send from you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. John 16.7-13 Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart... I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I do, I go to my Father, and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world judge is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when the Holy Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whether whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will not take of what is mine and declare it to you. Or he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So he only speaks the words of Jesus. He only turns on the light to the teaching of Jesus. He only points us to Jesus. You see, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would complete the final act. If He gave the Holy Spirit to us to, to continue transforming us, then, then He will finish it as we've been seeing here, the final act of redemption to ransom our spirit as well as our body. Isaiah twenty six nineteen. listen. Your dead shall live together with my dead body. Shall they rise again? Awake and sing, you who dwell on the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. That's prophetic. Listen to the fulfillment, Matthew 27, 51-53. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two at the top to the bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, who were dead, were raised. And coming out of their graves after his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. Hey, hi, Joe. How you doing? Whoa. As the first fruits, a sample of what was to follow. Wow. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one to 53 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. We shall be changed in a moment in the twinkle of the eye. At the last trump, for the... Trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ, uh, or the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. When the Lord comes for us in the rapture, that's what will take place. Paul says it a different way in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15-17. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, not his opinion. That we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So you won't beat those who left before you. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Who's there? The bodies that are in the grave. When he comes for us in the rapture, we're going to be translated up immediately transformed to our glorified bodies and we'll be caught up with the dead bodies that will be going up with us and as the dead loved ones are coming back they will be joined with their bodies in the cloud where we'll meet the Lord. He says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds 
to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The word is harpazo. Suddenly, violently. Both Corinthians and Thessalonians are speaking of the rapture. That's when the glorified bodies are received. Wow. That's the final chapter. Now, if you die, you're going to be present before the Lord. When the rapture comes, you receive your glorified body. <laughs> if you're alive, it happens all at one time. The admiration of the Holy Spirit is for His part in the salvation of the believer. Do you, do you realize how wealthy we are? Wow. The particular blessings of the Father, the Son, and now the Holy Spirit. This is the blessing associated with the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of salvation. Evident by the illumination of the Holy Spirit is to generate or regenerate sinners into believers. The identification of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify and glorify the believer. And the admiration of the Holy Spirit is for his part in the salvation of the believer. Wow. Ephesians is so good. We haven't even got out of the first chapter. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for your grace over our life. How wealthy we are, Lord. Help us not to live like paupers. But that we realize we're joint heirs with you, Lord. As you're praying in us. You lift your heart to the Lord. If you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. To repent of your sins. You might be over the internet. If you don't know Jesus, then he desires that you see yourself under his wrath so that you might call on his name, that you might agree with him so that he can forgive you. And if this is your desire and your decision, then you can say this prayer of repentance. It's yours to him, not to us. And if you mean it, he will save you. He will make you a son or his daughter by grace through faith. As you look to what he did for you and nothing else. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.